Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and you're tuned in to Future City, our monthly conversation that changes the conversation about Baltimore from what's wrong to what's next. Today on the show. Tonight, the forecast is urgent and distressing. This is a very, very bad scenario for us here. Hurricane Harvey intensifying rapidly, expected to slam into Texas as a... With the fire disaster unfolding in California tonight, at least 22 wildfires are still burning. They are growing and threatening more homes. White House budget director said today there will be no bailout for Puerto Rico after the president suggested there might be. The hurricane 2017 is looking to be a record-setting year when it comes to natural disasters in the United States. Two floods, one freeze, seven severe storms, three tropical cyclones, one drought, and one outbreak of wildfires. Climate change and a growing population have all contributed to a rise in natural disasters around the world. So, what's being done about it? This month, we look at where governments have fallen short when it comes to preventing natural disasters, as well as providing relief in their wake. The very construction of our cities needs to change. Where we live and how we live all affect the deadliness of these increasingly numerous weather-related calamities. We'll also address concerns we have as Marylanders living in a coastal state. Since 1950, 118 known hurricanes and tropical storms have affected the state. What's the future of our region going to look like? And how can we best prepare? But first, we'll look at some other natural disasters around the country and what has happened in their wake. Our first guest on the show today is Jed Horn, and he's the author of the book, very good book, The Breach of Faith, Hurricane Katrina, and the Near Death of a Great American City. Jed, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Wes. So, Jed, you've been a New Orleans resident for a few decades now, and uh, and can you tell us a bit about your personal experience with Hurricane Katrina? Well, it was, uh, for all of us, uh, to say the least, traumatic. Um, I was actually out of town as the storm struck, but I got back there rather quickly and uh, was involved uh, as, as the editor of a daily newspaper with, uh, with covering this whole uh, fiasco, both, both the, the disaster itself and then the recovery. And subsequently, we've kept a close eye on uh, efforts to flood-proof the city, uh, which is almost impossible, but we've done our best and uh, seen subsequent evidence of the climate change that makes that uh, ever more challenging. But you talk about, you know, the ability that it's almost impossible. I mean, when you, in that moment, when Katrina was going on, what were your thoughts? And and in the direct aftermath, when you looked at all the damage that everything caused, I mean, did you think that it was even going to be possible to rebuild after that? There was a deep skepticism uh, on my part, and it was shared, of course, in Congress by people who, in some cases, would have been just as happy to see New Orleans go away. New Orleans is a controversial city. New Orleans is a black city. And, you know, you had in people like Speaker of the House, Dennis Hastert, folks who were saying, ah, you know, let's just reduce it to a, a sort of a river control spot and get rid of the populations there and accept the fact that the city never should have been built in the first place. The real surprise uh, was to discover some three, four years after Katrina, and we'd sort of begun piecing ourselves back together, is that New Orleans had suddenly become kind of red hot. And there was a whole generation of young people who wanted to come down there, uh, wanted to do good work, wanted to save the world, wanted to launch their own careers in film and the arts because New Orleans remained 
a relatively inexpensive place to to live. And it's been a huge shot in the arm. We also had a, a great influx of Hispanics who came up from Mexico and helped us rebuild the city. And I have to confess, I was surprised by that kind of energy. I thought we might just kind of slowly fade away as people reckoned with the dangers that we face and still face. But here we are, and, um, you know, proud to be seeing the city come back strong. And it's interesting because uh, when you look at hurricanes, and now hurricanes are also different, you know, a tornado can pull up and just happen quickly, right? Versus hurricanes, there are generally days of lead up. There are days where we're letting people know, hey, it's probably going to make landfall on Tuesday or it's probably going to happen on Wednesday. And and there's days of preparation. And I think one of the big lessons learned post-Katrina was how exactly to get people prepared for something that we are telling them it is coming. And, uh, and, and the enormity, we're never sure of until it shows up, but there is a way to prepare for it. How do you think that we've now changed the narrative in the way that we prepare people for natural disasters post-Katrina? Well, in the case of New Orleans, we, we have not changed it enough. Um, I think individually we know now that uh, the appropriate response to a, an apocalyptic storm is to get out of town if you possibly can or get the, to higher ground or get up into the top of a building that hopefully isn't going to blow over. But the real preparation is to look long-term at the way you manage water, the way you manage your relationship as a city surrounded by water like New Orleans is, and New Orleans, half of it is below sea level, let's not forget. It's how you deal with that very existential threat which water poses. And New Orleans has begun to make a very significant change. It has not gone nearly far enough. But the change is toward, rather than trying to force water out of the city at every opportunity, to pave the city over, to pipe the water underground out into the lake or into the river, the goal now is to find ways to live with water. And a huge uh, example there that all the world is copying and that New Orleans would be smart to copy much more quickly is the Netherlands, where they have really uh, broken new ground in terms of letting water come into areas that they used to defend, you know, relentlessly and always unsuccessfully against possible future flooding, and uh, to, to live with it, to turn it into a recreational asset, to open up the canals and let people enjoy the, uh, you know, the vistas, the parkland that can be created. And, and the retention of water during floods that makes it possible to survive them by, by putting retentive ponds in, in parks and, uh, in other ways, slowing down the flow of water until the crisis is passed, and then you can uh, see it abate, you can pump it, you can let it uh, uh, evaporate more naturally. We're getting there, but we've got a long way to go. And, and you talk about that in the article that you published uh, with City Lab, uh, and the title of, of a Dutch understanding to flooding and why can't America manage it, where where there are ways of being able to deal with the storms once they come in to help so that it does not become an, a real existential question both for cities and for the residents. But you, there's also an acknowledgement in there about the fact that where people are even before the storm comes, 
that does matter. And the fact that we have such economic disparity, the fact that you have, you know, part of the challenge of Katrina was how many people who were living in core distinct poverty at that moment, where even if we were putting together evacuation orders and such, if you're living in poverty, you're not evacuating. What are you evacuating from? And some people, it's much more challenging for them to be able to get out. How do we think about that in terms of the, the challenge of the psyche of, uh, of, of, of the American people about planning for disasters? And even if the Dutch are coming up with the best practice, how exactly to put it, in, you know, put it into core practice when there's a psychological shift that also has to take place? There's a lot of there's a lot of psychology to any evacuation, and it's worth remembering that the evacuation before Katrina, even though Washington tended to come down and scold us and said we're fools to live there and you should have gotten out of Dodge and so forth, it was the largest evacuation in American history to that point. Uh, you know, more than a million people did get away. But you're quite right, the people who are often most vulnerable, the people whose housing is in the lowest parts of the city. Uh, the elderly, the frail, uh, they have a much harder time getting out. Now, since Katrina, you know, it was a kind of a wake-up call, and networking has put been put in place. A lot of it has been handled very interestingly by uh, faith communities, churches, and so forth, who have built up networks of response such that, you know, elderly person number A, B, or C has got a friend within the community who will look after the business of helping that person evacuate to, to Texas or to Mississippi or farther up into the, the Tennessee area. Uh, but those, again, are, and, and, and I would say also that public transportation has been, has been awakened to the need to respond in the event of, uh, of a catastrophe like Katrina. The Amtrak had more or less shut down. The school buses, which were numerous, uh, were in a lot. Uh, not being put in use, that lot flooded, so those buses were wrecked anyway. I mean, it was a it was a study in in chaos. Yeah. But more interestingly, in the longer term perspective, what you get as you begin embracing the idea that you have to live with water rather than simply fight against it is an invigorated community because living with water is a cohering kind of a force. Communities awaken to a shared fate, whether you're rich, poor, or otherwise. And in that in that kind of solidarity, there there comes a kind of a uh, of a robustness, a resilience to disaster that can be logistically as important as as any specific measure you might otherwise take. And if you look at the fact that there are changing. You know, there there are people who are, who will make judgments about what things are going to look like in in te- you know decades or or in hundreds of years, where there is estimations that there are cities, very famous cities, that probably will not exist in a couple of years because of the continuing trends that we're seeing. And you've heard uh, you've heard scientists talk about everything from Venice to Miami uh, and and many other cities in between that that they are not sure if there is a uh, there is a path forward to be able to keep these cities, uh, you know, to keep the be able to keep these cities, uh, you know, up and, and moving. Well, in the long term, in the long term, Wes, you know, all geography is subject to change and to eradication. In the short term, and the question really is how long is short, you've got places like New Orleans that are tremendously vulnerable. 
Uh, Miami, you've mentioned Lower Manhattan. Let's let's look at at Manhattan after Sandy and recognize that there's an enormous infrastructural vulnerability down there. Yeah. You know, flooded uh, subway tunnels. Um, you know, destroyed electrical conduits and all the rest of it. The Dutch, to mention them again, are shocked by the lack of forward motion in New York towards a more intelligent, a more sophisticated way of working and living with with water. Specific to New Orleans, the city itself is probably habitable, you know, into the 100-year scenarios pretty reliably, especially if uh, we get smarter about how we confront the flood threat, the rainfall threats, and, and, and all the rest of it. Longer term, you know, all bets are off. I would not predict that New Orleans levee system, which is huge and, and, and quite robust, although still not nearly as robust as it should be, uh, I would not be certain that that will withstand, uh, you know, another century of, of testing by these huge storms. I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City, and we've been discussing the flaws in natural disaster prevention and relief with Jed Horn, who's the author of Breach of Faith, Hurricane Katrina, and the Near Death of a Great American City. Jed, thank you so much for making the time to speak with us today. Yes, I've enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. Coming up, how one organization is harnessing the entrepreneurial spirit to bring in bright ideas from around the country to prevent future natural disasters. Rebuild by Design reimagines solutions through collaboration and innovation. Stay tuned. Hey, I'm Wes Moore and welcome back to Future City. So on today's show, we're looking at how to prevent and handle natural disasters. From massive flooding to out-of-control wildfires, the United States has had its fair share of challenges in 2017. National and state governments are falling short when it comes to preparing for these seemingly inevitable disasters. And that's why one organization, Rebuild by Design, convenes a mix of sectors to find creative solutions to complex problems. And I'm honored to now be joined by Amy Chester, Rebuild by Design's Managing Director. Amy, it is so great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here. So, so let's start with understanding a bit more about Rebuild by Design and its history. It was launched by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, in the wake of Hurricane Sandy in 2012. Can you tell me a bit about its origins? Absolutely. So one of the initiatives of um, President Obama's Hurricane Sandy Task Force was to hold a design competition, and that became Rebuild by Design. So it initially started as a collaboration with HUD, and so that's our federal government, and four different partner NGOs on the ground in the Sandy region. So that's New York, New Jersey, Connecticut region. And the idea was to hold a competition that would be international in scope because we really didn't know how to build back. We didn't know how to, per, um, to really plan for the future. But if we got some of the best minds of the world and connected, to, connected it with the best minds of the region, we can come up with some real innovative projects that will help us plan. So Sandy uh, just passed the, the, the five-year anniversary of, mm-hmm. of Sandy. Uh, can you talk to us a bit about the progress that's been made since then? So after the competition um, ended, HUD awarded $930 million to these projects. There were six winners and a runner-up. So we now have seven projects. I'm happy to report that they are all moving forward, which to me is tremendously exciting. I think that's a testament to all the community work that's been 
happening and all the local governments that have really chipped in to make sure that these become realities. And I'm also happy to report that now there's about $1.7 billion in these projects. However, none of them um, have started building yet because these are large-scale projects. They take a long time to figure out all the engineering studies and the environmental assessments that have to happen. So they'll all start building around 2019. So they'll start building in 2019, but but as you pointed out, this is a collaboration by its nature, right? It's 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 it's, mm-hmm. it's intentional that you have multiple sectors, uh, you know, multiple items of of funding, et cetera. Uh, why was that important to the design? I mean, there's so many reasons. One of which is we knew that we didn't want just an engineering solution. If we were going to bring an engineering solution to Manhattan, we'd be walling our communities off from the waterfront. So we needed something that was really design-based, design-focused, but we couldn't, of course, do it without engineers. We needed everybody at the table. So the call was out to interdisciplinary design teams to form themselves, and they were really chosen on their background and their approaches, not on their solutions because we wanted to collaborate with the people on the ground. The folks on the ground may be local governments that have permitting power, or they could be community organizations that have been working on the vulnerabilities of their communities for years. And Hurricane Sandy just exposed those vulnerabilities. We all knew they existed before. So the collaboration is extremely important for both coming up with the best idea, but also making sure that it's implementable And that is because these were disaster recovery funds, and if they're not used by a certain timeline, Congress will take them back and appropriate them to another important project. And we couldn't have that happen. So we built in all of the collaboration up front to make sure that by the time that the competition was over, everyone was united and really wanted to see these projects move forward. And I'm sure there are a bunch of of lessons learned that happened post-Sandy, you know, in, in terms of the after-action uh, review of, of what happened. Was there anything fundamental that the region did when it came to hurricane prevention or in the wake of larger storms that we either, A, no longer do, or there was a takeaway in saying we have to change our practice when we think about X? Was there anything that Hurricane Sandy just fundamentally shifted the way we think about this this whole issue? Well, I mean, generally, Hurricane Sandy generally, I'm sorry, fundamentally shifted our relationship with the water. We now realize that we live in a waterfront community. New York City is 520 miles of waterfront. It's not that we didn't know that before, but we didn't really understand that it was a vulnerability of ours. We thought sea level rise was something that happened, you know, 20, 40, 50, 200 years from now, but not something that was threatening us today. So the shift is that when we think of large-scale infrastructure projects, whether it's in this region or other regions, we start thinking about what the future holds and try to incorporate that knowledge into the designs today. Our our, our guest before you was uh, Jed Horn, uh, who's an author, uh, and talked about Hurricane Katrina. He Mm. mentioned the fact that he said that Lower Manhattan was an area that he believed that, uh, you know, within... A period of time, call it a, you know, call it a century, call it 50 years, whatever the case might be, that unless serious changes are made, would no longer exist. Mm-hmm. That uh, that that the storms would essentially, you know, take it over. Is, is that is that an assessment that you agree with? Well, it is an alarming wake-up call, and I agree that without change, it wouldn't exist. But change is already happening. So if you look at the floodplain of Lower Manhattan, it really 
follows how our ancestors filled in and created more space in lower Manhattan from the 1650s to today. And all of that fill is the most vulnerable area. That's our floodplain. So we need to make sure that we do other things to protect that area. One of the designs that came out of the Rebuild by Design competition was the Big U, and that's focused on lower Manhattan almost primarily, and that's going to be one of the things that help protect us. Now, I don't, wouldn't ever say that it's going to save us, because what's really going to save us is not hard infrastructure, but the understanding that we need to live with water. We're going to have a lot more rain events, we're going to have a lot more heavy storms, and we need to understand that at sometimes we might be flooded, even if we have a big large-scale infrastructure um, initiative that has been fully funded and implemented. It's more about understanding our relationship with the water and knowing that that's the way that we're going to live. I think that's what's really going to save us. And I also do think that some of our ideas are going to play a huge part in it. Well, and when we talk about the relationship with the water, I mean, this also isn't something that just the federal government or the state government or local governments have to understand. There's also individuals that understand the relationship with the water, right? And, mm-hmm. and so when we're talking about the role of the individual citizen, so, you know, if I'm not a mayor, I'm not a governor, I'm not a senator, uh, I, I'm, I'm not part of an NGO, I'm just someone who lives on Bleecker Street. I am just mm-hmm. someone who lives on Spring Street. Uh what should I be doing? How do I prepare? What should I be thinking about when it comes to making sure that, uh, that, that my family is, is, is full up to bear on these kind of issues? Well, one, you have to be involved in the political process and make sure that our elected officials, whoever you may vote for, are thinking about this and preparing ourselves. We rely on them to allocate infrastructure dollars um, to some of these big projects. So if you're living on Beaker, Bleaker or Spring Street, you might be thinking about that. However, if you're living in a city like Hoboken, which is just across from Bleecker and uh, Spring Street on the New Jersey side, you'd be thinking about what can I do on my property to absorb water? Because rain events are, you know, that happen very often in Hoboken uh, contribute to the flooding. So what is the green infrastructure? How do I make sure that my driveway is not paved with cement, but maybe gravel that can store water? What are the things that I can do on my roof that will store water? How can I reuse that water? So I think that we all have a responsibility to do things to make sure that our homes and our property is as sustainable and resilient as it can be. But we also have a responsibility to make sure that we're electing and investing in our you know, government and communities that are making the larger choices for us. And so, so last question for you, uh, Amy, is, is actually how to think about this in terms of scalability. Uh, you know, you all, it, it, took, it took Sandy to be able to say, we really need to think harder about this. Uh, we really need to think about the fact that we're now having, you know, storms of the century that are taking place uh, over the process of a decade. Uh, and we have to be able to prepare our, our, our infrastructure, both soft and hard infrastructure, for the probability of reoccurrence. And also, what do we do in the wake when these things happen? But we also understand that the New York region is not the only region of our country that is coastal. And the New York region is not the only region of the country that has to form a new relationship with water. How are you taking your lessons learned? How are you taking these these really innovative ideas and then sharing them with other places to say, these are just some things that you all should also be thinking about when it comes to these type of challenges? I am so glad you asked that question because immediately after Hurricane Sandy, other regions um, came to us and asked us for our expertise and our lessons learned. And three, three years ago, we started working with the region in San Francisco. 
And right now, we are in the middle of a Bay Area Resilient by Design competition that is modeled 100% off of the learnings that we had for Rebuild by Design. However, they didn't experience a Hurricane Sandy like we did. They're actually doing it for long-term planning and focusing on, focusing on sea level rise as their main shock and stress, hmm. but also some of the other issues that exist in San Francisco today, like transportation challenges, housing challenges, the um, huge inequity problems that they have. So they're looking to international designers to come work with their communities to solve those problems. That is fantastic. And, and, and they're going to be releasing their results and releasing their, their findings and going through their process on a similar type of timeline as you all, or how have they thought about that? Yeah, so the um, so Rebuild by Design goes um, uses a two-step model of collaborative research and collaborative design because we really believe that until the designers are coming and working and understanding with the communities, they can't start designing. Yeah. So the collaborative research stage for that process is ending in mid-November, and then they'll be going into their design stage, working with the communities and the geographies that they think are most important, and then they'll be released this coming June. You're listening to Future City, and we've been talking with Amy Chester, the Managing Director of Rebuild by Design, about the future of natural disaster prevention and relief. Amy, thank you so much for being here, and thank you for your work. Thank you for having me. Coming up, Baltimore's unique challenges as a coastal city. We'll talk with a representative from the Office of Sustainability about the state's disaster preparedness plan. How do you keep your home and family safe if natural disaster hits the city? Stay tuned. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and welcome back to Future City. On this month's show, natural disasters, relief and prevention, what's being done and what's not being done. And we've seen how cities like New Orleans have fared in the wake of Hurricane Katrina and discussed how governments are changing their approach to disaster relief innovation based on the premise of collaboration. So now let's take a look at our own city, the city of Baltimore. We're a coastal city with unique challenges when it comes to hurricanes and flooding. And here to help us understand more is Lisa McNeely, who's the Director of Sustainability for the City of Baltimore, where she leads a team charged with creating, nurturing, and implementing initiatives that promote environmental, economic, and social sustainability. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Wes. And thank you for your leadership uh, in, in this in absolutely crucial role. How, how, many, how long have you been in this seat now? Here in Baltimore, uh, not quite five months. Not um, quite five months. It's been an uh, exciting time. Uh, my husband and I moved here from California, although we've lived in a few different places, including D.C. for a while. So mm. it's, uh, it's a wonderful city. Uh, we have loved sort of just about every minute of it. It's an, it's an amazing city. It's also uh, you're walking into a job with an extraordinary context, right, where we've watched this year of 2017 be the, the, the deadliest recorded when it comes to natural disasters. Uh, and, and again, not just in this region, but around the country and around the world. Uh, understanding that, uh, what type of, you know, how do you think about how the role of the city is going to play in terms of really helping to prepare and address these these conversations that are taking place? Well, I think um, you know one of the things that my office does is, is work with other city agencies on the planning ahead for the disaster, the disaster preparedness. And as a as a government, 
we um, we both write an official plan. FEMA requires it. That's the Federal Emergency Management Administration. They require that we look at our hazards, that we address, that we have plans for addressing them, and that's something that the city's done. We uh, included um, aspects of climate adaptation into our plan, and we're looking to to renew it next year. We have to update it every five years, as we should. Uh, to include equity, to include historic structures and some other more community-based um, uh, sort of focus. Um, but we also work to mitigate. Um, we um, both do uh, stream restorations around. Uh, Baltimore is at the bottom of three different, uh, multiple watersheds. Um, and so we want to shore up those streams to try to prevent flooding, working on our stormwater system. Um, and we also do, of course, the government does the the emergency response. Um, we are the our, there's a mayor's office of emergency management that um, is in charge with of coordinating the response when when those emergencies actually happen. And so we talk about collaboration with other jurisdictions that are in similar type of situations. You know, Baltimore is unique uh, in the fact that we are a coastal city. So there's things that we deal with that a lot of other places mm-hmm. might not deal with. But we're also not unique in being a coastal city. Yeah. Who, who do you look at as some of the some of our closest sister cities when it comes to these type of challenges? You know, which administrators from around the country are you closest in touch with? Right. So, you know, Baltimore faces hazards of, it's a coastal city, we have flooding, we have riverine flooding. So we have these streams that, that cause flooding. Um, and we have, we're gonna be seeing, we have seen and expect to see a lot more flash flooding from these intense rainstorms that we're gonna see. We see heat waves and we worry about hurricanes. And so, um, and given the fact that we have so many historic structures, so much old infrastructure and, and, and such a history of inequity, inequality, being one of the most segregated cities still in the country, um, we look to some of our other East Coast um, city uh, partners to to help us figure this out. So we have, you know, up in New Jersey with you know, um, um, and down down on the Virginia coast as well. But we work with um, sort of cities across the, the the country because we can always learn from 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 anybody in terms of how to how to how to prepare better for this. There were a lot of a lot of staggering images from Harvey. Um, what we saw down in down in Texas, uh, interstates underwater, mm-hmm. uh, and really heartbreaking images that we saw. The other thing that we saw was how staggering some of the stats around it was. And one that particularly grabbed me was one around flood insurance. Was how few people mm-hmm. down there had flood insurance and the complications that that's now going to cause. Uh, how do we have that conversation with people here in mm-hmm. Baltimore about flood insurance? Mm-hmm. Well, th- we have about 1,300 residences or, or structures that are within sort of our very intense and sp- special flood hazard area. And we have just under half or that have flood insurance in this city. Hmm. And one of the reasons that happened is that I think over the last few years, um, people, you know, the people who worked on this before me and, and people who are in my office now worked to, to to get the word out about the insurance. But we also participated in something called the community rating system, the CRS. And that puts us in the top 10% of communities nationwide that participate in this. And it means that our residents in those special flood areas get a 25% discount on their flood insurance and that any resident in Baltimore gets a 10% discount. And I think that's driven, uh, it makes it much more affordable um, and it, it, it's helped us 
sort of, I think, increase those numbers of the people who do have insurance uh, against floods here. So when we say that we that it's estimated that 50% have have flood insurance. It, it's under 50%. Let me get that. Under, <laughs> under 50% have, yeah. flood, have flood insurance. Um, what do we do with the greater than 50%? How are we thinking? How are we thinking right. about that? Um, well, it is something, you know, some people are required to have it. If you are in those special flood areas and you've, you've, you've built a building, you're renovating, and you use federal dollars, including an FHA loan, you're required to have it. Um, but we work to spread the word. It's part of why, um, you know, through shows like this, um, through tabling. You know, we have staff members who will go out at events and, and sit there and tell people how it is they can help buy insurance, how they can get insurance, what the benefits of it are, and the fact that there is this incentive to get it by virtue of the 25% reduction. And you come, you come to, to Maryland from California, which uh, has a different set of, of challenges, very significant and, mm-hmm. and real uh, challenges, even as we saw with the with the wildfires um, mm-hmm. uh, that have taken place in California over these past few months, how do you see that transition in the type of situations that California was dealing with to now the type of situations and potential challenges that Maryland deals yeah. with? Well, I think in California, we would say emergencies and we would really mean earthquakes. Um, um, or we'd say disasters and we meant earthquakes. That's what, what people worried about, although it's, it's earthquakes and wildfires, as we also know uh, from the news this year. Um, with those, um, especially with earthquakes that are, uh, happen with much less frequency, um, but, but, that, but that can affect everybody in the area, it means that um, you have to spend a lot more time really trying to work on every building and every system. To, to try to minimize the human loss that, that can happen in that disaster. You want to, you can, there's a lot they can do to retrofit different buildings. I mean, I worked at the University of California at Berkeley. They uh, retrofitted their football stadium, which sits right on the fault line. Um, they actually sort of broke it into two pieces so that when, when, the, when the earthquake happens, the, the stadium will sort of just, or it's like it's perforated at two edges and split. Yeah. Um, but um, you pay attention to, to those kinds of factors that, that help limit the loss of lives. But I think it also means that people there aren't, it's, there's a certain fatalistic response to it. You know, it's, it's inevitable, it's gonna happen. You know, people don't have earthquake insurance by and large. Um, and, but, um, but when we, but what you saw there um, with the wildfires and in Houston is that, um, um, there were people who would have said, yes, I know I'm in an area where there's wildfires, or yes, I know I'm in Houston and it can flood. But they didn't think it would happen to them, yeah. and it did. And we saw what that happened in Santa Rosa, especially. It was some of the most vulnerable populations, you know, vulnerable in those communities who, who, who had the most impact. And I think that lesson of remembering that just because you're not in the special floodplain area, just where, where you have the highest risk of a flood, we can still see flooding here. You do still need to plan. You need to know how to evacuate. You need to think about how it is that you can help others in your community evacuate. One of the things we're doing here in, in Baltimore is creating resiliency hubs, which are community-based. It's sort of at the intersection of, of government and individual action, where we work with cu- trusted community partners. Um, they provide sort of, sh- they would be expected to provide maybe short-term assistance in a disaster that might sort of complement the, the first responders, um, 
you know, sort of during the daytime. But it, it's in a, it's in a, it's a way to help shore that up so that um, when it happens and it happens to the people who didn't think it would happen to them, that they still have resources and can still be prepared. And it, but it's interesting because you have. Um, both on the individual side, but then also on the governmental side, this issue of reactive versus proactive, mm-hmm. right? It's once something happens, what do we then put into it? I, I think you know Katrina is a really interesting example. When you think about the amount of money that we've now put into Katrina, you know, it's north of three billion dollars into New Orleans, kind of to build up and, and mm-hmm. rebolster up, up levies, et cetera. Um, but it's even in, it's almost gone to an, an antiquated system. These were things, and the reason that we had to do it was because when a Category 3 storm comes in and the levees fail, we then have what ended up happening in, in New Orleans. As as a member of the government, when thinking about this office, it's a really complicated thing at a time when mm-hmm. everyone is talking about budget cuts to turn around and have that conversation and say, but guys, listen, it's going to be much more expensive if we have to deal with this from a reactive footing mm-hmm. than if we're not dealing with it from a proactive footing. Mm-hmm. How do we lead that conversation to help people understand that the reason that we're talking about putting significant investments into things is because we don't want to have to deal with the consequence mm-hmm. of being caught flat-footed mm-hmm. on this? That is, you know, that's partly why I'm, I, I do what I do. Um, it's why I do public policy. Um, not because I think I have those answers, is but but I think that that's a role that offices of sustainability, um, the proactive planner in the Department of Public Works, you know, the the really savvy person in the Office of Emergency Management, we can be the voices at the table to try to bring to put that there. You know, the city of Baltimore is facing some very immediate challenges with public safety. It, it's connected. You, you you have to make those connections and you have to sort of stay there and sort of be at the table and sort of make those those points. And then also try to, um, there's no one way to do that. It's, it's, it's making progress on a lot of different areas. Our disaster plan has like 130 something different actions to take. And it's because you have to work at these things from all of those different areas. I think people in local governments and in state governments especially are are seeing that. I think this range of disasters that we're seeing has made people understand that. And I think people understand that. Again, back to these resiliency hubs, we have partners um, who are just really interested in doing this and being a part of this, who have staff people who are from the neighborhood, who live in the neighborhood, who can walk to these hubs in the in event of emergency, who know who these most vulnerable are in their communities and can help um, help us have that response. But it's it's difficult and it can be expensive. And so part of one of the other things that the city of Baltimore does is um, our floodplain code, our flood code is more stringent than the federal government's. And what that means is that in in certain areas, we require that that buildings or, or equipment or structures are elevated two feet above the base flood elevation. We do that more often and for more structures than is required by the federal government. And what that means is that we're spreading the cost of being proactive out over time. We're not saying, we're not coming in, everybody has to do this tomorrow, but we're saying when you, you know, when you build, when you buy, when you do a significant renovation, these are the kinds of things we need you to do so that that you're less vulnerable to the disaster and it costs less moving forward. And it's something that the city's um, had in place for a while and something we um, are, are take very seriously. 
When you talk about the interconnectedness of, of, of all of these issues, um, the truth is, is that there are certain things that make your job fundamentally tougher. One is poverty. One is if you have a person that is living in a chronic state of poverty, uh, how they can prepare for a natural disaster, how the city can help prepare itself and prepare all populations for a natural disaster become incredibly complicated. Uh, and you know, basic things like evacuations become complicated conversations. <laughs> basic things like reentering into communities become very complicated conversations. Mm. We talk about the interconnectedness of all of these different issues. And if there's one thing that has significant impacts on your work, that's the issue of poverty, is that it's impossible to talk about how you can accomplish your work and accomplish your job without understanding how poverty complicates your work and complicates your job. Mm. Um, you know, if, when it comes to everything from evacuation to reentry, et cetera, when you're talking about a family who's living in poverty, or you're talking about a community that is chronically below a poverty level, it makes those conversations that much more complicated. Uh, can you talk a bit about the interconnectedness of all the different departments within the city mm. and how their work, how their success really also helps to determine your success as well? So, you know, one of the most heartbreaking statistics that, I, that I've heard, and this is, this is nationally, is, is what percentage of households, I think it's between 40 and 50 percent, couldn't come up with $400 on an emergency basis in cash, even on a month's notice. And and to think about what what it would take if you did need to evacuate to, to and to not be able to do that is um, something that we want to not have, you know, we don't want that to be the difference between when people sort of are able to evacuate or not in a disaster. But it takes everyone working together to help a city be more resilient, and it takes having citizens that are more resilient to, to have a good response. When uh, when I first started doing some of this work and people would ask me, what do you mean by resilience? Because that word gets used in a lot of different capacities. And I would say, you know, New Orleans and the Hurricane Katrina was not a resilient city. That was not a city that could bounce back. Mm -hmm. And so at some level, a lot of what the city of Baltimore is doing right now to uh, improve things on a day-to-day -day basis also makes us more resilient to these shocks that we're going to see moving forward. But it, um, by working together so that, you know, when I work on these resiliency hubs, I talk to our health department to, uh, to make sure that we understand um, what they know about uh, the response of citizens uh, to disasters so that we can make sure that resiliency hubs maybe have a separate refrigerator for medicine so that if people lose power and they're diabetic, and they can bring their, their medications and still have um, a power and a refrigerated place to put those medicines because our resiliency hubs are going to have solar and battery storage. Um, that we work with the mayor's office of emergency management. After the uprising in 2015, one of the things that was, that was clear to, to the, some of the people who had been working on food policy in the city was that food systems were disruptive. We had people who were very food vulnerable after that and are working now to incorporate um, issues around the food systems, not just sort of the providing the food to people who have maybe been displaced and in a shelter, but just getting it into the communities for people who um, um, need that needed that connection to happen. And so we're working um, 
for him, the food system did not, you know, adequately uh, get food into their corner store so that they had access to it. So we're working with them to the with the emergency response on that. It's um, um, and as we're writing our sustainability plan, we're listening to people to better understand that. I I don't um, I don't have all the answers right now, um, and what we're working to do is to have a conversation and to really make sure that. We hear every voice and that every story counts as we're planning this and working with all the different agencies. And I think the final question, I, I think about the impacts on Baltimore when these things happen not to Baltimore, but they have direct impacts on Baltimore. So, for example, I think about Puerto Rico, um, where we watched not just a part of an island be destroyed. We watched the entire thing be destroyed. What then happened was you then had an entire island that essentially fell into poverty and now had to find somewhere else to go. And we know that there are many cities, to include Miami, to include New York, that are going to take on a heavy portion of the you know American citizens, Puerto Ricans, who are then going to have to relocate to these areas either on a temporary basis or on a long-term basis. Uh, how is Baltimore thought about it in coordination with some of these other areas where issues of displacement, where this is not just about what if there's a direct hit of a hurricane on Baltimore, but what if it happens anywhere else in the country that Baltimore has a significant and distinct Mm -hmm. relationship with them? Mm -hmm. How do we think about that as well? You know, this may be an area where I'm not sure I have the, I'm I'm not sure that I have an answer. Um, It's um, I think that um, I think we should be prepared for that. I mean, Baltimore at some level is a little bit protected from some of the hurricanes ourselves, by um, virtue of where we are in the um, on the coast. Um, but it's um, that would be an interesting. That's a I, you know what I'm going to do. I don't I don't know that I have an answer for you, but we will with the next within a year. How's that, Wes? <laughs> no, that's great because I it, it's 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 a it's an important thing to think about. Where um, you know one thing about Baltimore and you know Baltimore is uh, you know for for all of it, it's a it's a pretty diverse city where we have people from Venezuela and Guatemala and. Puerto Rico and mm-hmm. uh, Jamaica and, and people from all over the world who also call Baltimore home. Uh, and if things happen to those areas, the first natural instinct for any of us is find family, find places you can go where there's going to be uh, where there's going to be support. Uh, and I think Baltimore is, uh, you know, if not at the very top of that list, Baltimore is probably somewhere near it when you think about the diversity of the city of Baltimore. Uh, and so, you know, how we are working and preparing for those scenarios where people are then looking for either temporary or long-term mm-hmm. supports does become uh, does become something important. No, it is. We have such a diversity of neighborhoods. Um, and, uh, um, you know, one of the challenges that the city's facing is the, um, you know, the, the vacant housing um, yes. and populations. And so um, I, I think we have a new uh, strategy we need to consider. Well, we've been talking with uh, Lisa McNeely, who's the Director of Sustainability for the City of Baltimore. Lisa, thank you for your service and thank you for uh, joining us today. Thanks, Wes. So as we're closing up this conversation, I want to leave with a few thoughts. First is that this has been an incredible joy and an incredible honor to have this time with all of you, listeners and guests. 
that we can take the time to think about what kind of city that we want to be. And this journey that we've gone on together has been truly remarkable. Baltimore has a lot to offer, but we also have a lot to learn. And to think about how we want to raise and educate our children, how we want to get around in our city, how we want to rethink policing, how we want to think about the jobs that we will have and discuss countless other topics and think about what it means in the future of our city has been a real privilege. So in this last episode of 2017, we took stock of what a tumultuous and a heartbreaking year for many this year has been. Images of interstates underwater of homes irreparably destroyed by fire, entire miles of them, entire islands lost like what we saw in Puerto Rico. And we're not naive enough to think that this is something unique to 2017. We'll see these things again. So during this holiday season, we remember that there was a significant amount of loss this year. People mourning what they'll never get back and people mourning who they will never see again. But what this episode asks us to do is to also remember that there are those who are working daily to ensure that these storms and natural disasters do not have to have cataclysmic results. We know that a future where serious storms happen is inevitable, but an insufficient response to them does not have to be. Our future city needs to be willing to invest now to make sure the human and financial damage that these storms can cause do not destroy everything else that we are trying to build. So as we come to a close, I want to say to all of you, have a wonderful, blessed, and a safe holiday season. And we're looking forward to an exciting, continued conversation about future cities in 2018. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. We welcome your feedback. And you can contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And my handle is at IamWestmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit us at WYPR.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. So, until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is sponsored by Janine and Josh Fittler and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive.